All right, praise God. Uh, join me as we uh, look at the Word of God. Open up Matthew 24 and then John 13. It's going to be up on the screen behind me and then on the screen at home. But Matthew 24, 12 and then John 13, 34 through 35. Amen. This is God's Word. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And then John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory and we thank you, Father, for this day. We thank you for this time. And Father God, we know that you are with us. And so, Lord Jesus, we do not want to waste away this time by being lost in our own thoughts, by being consumed by worry and anxiety, uh, being distracted. Father, but rather we want to be focused in on what you want to say. Please speak to us, Lord. Open up your word to us. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We thank you, Lord. We want this time to be for you. It is all about you. We worship you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, today we're going to be starting an entire brand new series. It's going to be a short series, and it's called Love in the Last Days. Love in the Last Days. And this entire year, we've been focused on this theme of being the church, right? That's the theme of this year. And so we've been looking at a lot of different topics related to that, such as the marks of a true church. We kicked off the year with that. Then we went into spiritual gifts in the church, and then we just wrapped up Jesus' letters to the church in Revelation. So my goodness, the year is flying by. We've only been through three series. But these are all topics found in the Word of God, and they reveal what God expects for the church. Amen? So this is God's will for the church, everything we've looked at. But there's something I haven't mentioned yet, which is the context for being the church. There is a context in which we are doing all these things. And the context is the last days. God is calling us to be the church in the last days. So when I say the last days, what we're talking about is the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That's the technical definition. And even though this has lasted for 2,000 years, it's called the last days because this time period between Jesus' first coming and second coming, this is the final era in God's plan of salvation. I'll say that again. I know, it just seems like, I mean, does that even have any meaning, the last days? It's been going on for 2,000 years. But yeah, there's a lot of meaning. Because the last 2,000 years since Jesus' first coming, all the way until his second coming in the future, this is the last era in God's plan of salvation. This is the final leg in God's timeline of redemption. Okay, what am I talking about? There's nothing left in God's plan of salvation that needs to happen before the end comes. Okay, do we understand that? That's why this is called the last days. There's nothing else that needs to happen before human history, as we know it, comes to an end. Now, yes, there are still some end time events that need to happen. I mean, you can get into that and study, you know, what events and what order. So there are some events that need to happen. But there's nothing left in God's salvation, his plan of salvation that needs to be enacted. So theoretically, the end could come at any moment. And that's what the New Testament keeps saying. Jesus could return at any moment. So when you go into the Old Testament, this wasn't true for Abraham. Because there was still a lot left for God to do in his plan of salvation. This wasn't true for Moses, David, even Jesus when he walked the earth. 
This wasn't true because there were still a lot of things that needed to happen. But it's true now. See, we're living in the last days. So according to scripture, the end is imminent. Okay, the end of human history as we know it could come at any moment. Okay, tonight, Jesus could come back. These are the last days. So why am I talking about this? This is the context in which we are being the church. See, we're not called to be the church in a vacuum. We're not like, oh yeah, the church is a cool place, let's just be the church. No, there's a context. God's calling us to be the church in the last days, and this is so important. Why? Because if you understand the context, then you're going to understand what the church is going to face, right? There are some unique challenges the church is going to face. Not only that, but it's going to also determine how we respond to these things. We're in the last days. We're not just going to be the church any which way, but there's a unique way we need to respond. So with that context, okay, here's something else that the church is calling us to be. So we've looked at a lot of different topics up until now, but now you know the context. We're in the last days, and in these last days, God is also calling us to be a community of his love. Okay, he wants his church to be a community of his love. And not just any love, okay, not your love or my love. I'm talking about God's love, a community of God's love. And this need, you know, I was really praying uh, earlier um, this month of, oh, God, after the series on Revelation, what do you want us to look at? What do you want? And the more I looked at Scripture, the more I prayed, this became clear. This is so urgent, brothers and sisters, that we are a community of God's love in the last days. This is so urgent. And the reason why is because there is an increasing opposition to God's love. Again, how do we know that? Because we're in the last days. There is an increasing, growing opposition to God's love. Look at Matthew 24, 12. In the last days, Jesus said, lawlessness will increase. The love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness will be increased, and the love of many will grow cold. So we're going to look at that a little bit more, but at a minimum... Whatever lawlessness is, as it gets higher and higher, love will go lower and lower. So they're going to be opposed to each other. And why is that? Okay, what's the connection? Well, John Piper, he defines lawlessness as a deep hostility to God's authority. Okay, that's lawlessness. It's a deep hostility to authority. So in other words, lawless people don't recognize God's authority. Okay, they don't recognize the authority of God's word. So they simply want to do what they want to do. Okay, that's what lawless people do. Okay, I just want to live my life, right? I, whatever I feel like doing, I'm just going to do it. It doesn't matter what authority is in my life. I don't acknowledge any of it. And so when these lawless people hear God's command, okay, this is the greatest command, love God with everything you are, okay, Matthew 22. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And by the way, Jesus said this is the entire Old Testament. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, what do lawless people do? They go, no. No. I mean, that's a nice thought, but I'm not going to live by that. Okay, they might even just kind of accept it mentally, theoretically, but they're not going to live by it. In their hearts, they don't accept it. Or they might say, okay, that sounds good. I'll accept it, but on my terms. Okay, but my terms. In other words, I'll define what love is. I'm going to decide what love is. So a lot of Christians, they do this. They go, you know, I can love God and not go to church. Right? I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't go to church. I can love God, but not follow his word. I mean, really? This old, ancient book that seems so outdated, so misogynistic, so homophobic, so you fill in the blank. I don't need to follow this. 
I can be in a loving, same-sex relationship and be blessed by God. So they're redefining love. I can be a loving person and hold on to unforgiveness. I love God. Never mind that I totally cannot forgive this person in my life. And so they're redefining love. See, that's lawlessness. And the more lawlessness goes up, again, what happens? Love goes down. This is what Jesus said. In the last days, lawlessness will increase and the love of many will grow cold. And this increase in lawlessness, this is everywhere, right? It's everywhere. You know, even 20 years ago, I remember when I was starting out in ministry, um, yes, I'm that old, <laughs> but I was a college pastor, starting out in ministry, starting to preach. I heard a lot of talk about legalism. Okay, whenever I would go online and read Christian books, a lot of talk about legalism. And so I talked a lot about legalism. Legalism. I preached a lot on it. And I still believe legalism is a problem. Legalism is basically, oh, I follow the law and I'm righteous. Okay, that's how, why I'm good. That's why God loves me, because I follow his commands. So I talked a lot about that. That's not the gospel. But you know what? There's been a shift. There's been a shift. And people aren't talking about legalism as much today. And the reason why is because the greatest problem believers are facing in our culture, and even inside the church, is not legalism. But people are starting to realize, oh, it's lawlessness. It's lawlessness. In the last 10 years, and especially in the last five years, something changed. It's lawlessness. This is, that, this is the thing that's front and center. This is the thing that I'm encountering all the time. So you know what? I've had to change my emphasis in my preaching. I went from talking a lot more on legalism and not lawlessness, but now I'm talking a lot more about lawlessness. This is where people are at. This is where they're living. And this isn't hard to see. But you see this in the breakdown of God's order in society. Okay, that's increasing. Why? Because lawlessness is increasing. False teachers and false teachings, they're promoting lawlessness. That's increasing. Okay, there's false teachers everywhere now. I remember one of my relatives told me, you know, I'm curious about Christianity. What books do you recommend? I've been going to the Christian bookstore. I'm like, don't go there. <laughs> and the reason why is because I don't even trust the books in the Christian bookstore. Honestly, I don't even trust the majority of the books. I mean, I don't think they're all, like, devious and trying to manipulate us. I think there might be a lot of good intentions, but I just don't trust it anymore. False teachers, false teaching everywhere. Compromise and sin in the church increasing is everywhere. You know, it's kind of funny. Well, it's not funny because when I was in Malawi, I got to know the pastor a little bit, the other pastor who was a guest speaker at the retreat. I was one of the speakers. This pastor was the other one. And right before the first session, you know, we were just kind of chatting. Uh, we were just kind of waiting to go up there. And for whatever reason, we started talking about all the scandals and the high-profile pastors these days that have fallen. And so I don't know why it came up, but he started mentioning it. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, I heard about this one. He's like, yeah, I heard about this one. And you know how long we talked? 30 minutes. <laughs> and this was right before we went up to preach. But it's like, my goodness, 30 minutes talking about how many Christian leaders and pastors have fallen. Okay, one after another, high-profile, even local pastors we knew. And why is this everywhere? Again, lawlessness is increasing. And what happens when that increases? Love is decreasing. And so why is this happening? Okay, why is lawlessness increasing throughout the world? Well, we don't need to wonder why. Again, it's because we live in the last days. But there's something very specific the Bible says about the last days. Okay, please don't miss this. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 7. 
But the Bible says, let no one deceive you in any way for that day, the day of judgment, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, little g, or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, big G, proclaiming himself to be God, big G, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Okay, I know Paul's saying a lot there. But he's saying, in these last days, we're headed somewhere. Where are we headed? Towards this event when the man of lawlessness will be revealed, and then he's going to do certain things. And why is that going to happen? Because the mystery of lawlessness is already here working. It's taking us towards that. Okay, just hang in there with me. This will make sense, hopefully. 1 John 4.3 says the same thing, but a little differently. It makes it a little clearer. But John said, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and please, don't miss this, is already in the world. Okay, John wrote that 2,000 years ago. Okay, Paul said the same thing in 2 Thessalonians. I just read it. The man of lawlessness is coming, and the mystery of lawlessness, which is his spirit, is already at work. John said the same thing. The Antichrist is coming. We're in the last days now. Jesus already came, went up to heaven. We're headed towards this event. The Antichrist is coming, and his spirit is already at work. Is that clear? So what? What is the Bible saying? Okay, what is the Bible saying? The Bible is saying, ever since the last days began, again, when Jesus came and went back up to heaven, the Holy Spirit has been poured out, amen? The Holy Spirit is working on the earth. But there's another spirit at work. It's not the spirit of God, but the Bible says it's the spirit of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. The Antichrist has not been revealed yet. He's not here yet. I believe he's a real human being who's going to really come, you know, really, you know, inspired, motivated by the enemy. But his spirit is already here. The man of lawlessness isn't here, but his spirit is already here. This is the Antichrist spirit, the lawless spirit. And, and here's the important point. This is where it really it touches our lives. What exactly is this spirit doing in this world? What is this spirit doing? The spirit is busy preparing the world for the coming of the lawless one, the Antichrist. Okay, everything that's happening in the world right now, everything you see on Twitter, Reddit, you know, social media, everything that's happening at your workplace, your school, the things that you're talking about with your friends, the things happening in the media, government, I mean, you just name it, the economy, everything that is happening, the Antichrist spirit is preparing for the Antichrist to finally come. Okay, that is what's happening. This is the last days. See, the, a lot of people, they have the wrong idea. They think that, okay, the world is just kind of chugging along, doing what the world's always doing. I'm just living my life. The world's just moving along, as it always has. And then one day, the Bible says the Antichrist will show up, and oh my gosh, everything's going to change, right? Because this Antichrist is going to just completely take us hostage with his charismatic influence and his demonic agenda, and he's going to just kind of grab us and pull us into his thing. But in the meanwhile, we're just kind of living our lives. No, okay, that is not what the Bible says. But rather, Scripture says in the last days, the spirit of Antichrist is already at work right now. In fact, it's been working for 2,000 years to prepare for his coming. And on that day, when he is finally revealed, do you know what's going to happen? He's not going to suddenly like, do something extreme and sudden to you know, change the world. No, he's going to step right into the world that's perfectly prepared for him. It's going to be like sticking a hand into a well-fitted glove. 
He's like, yes, this is my place. It's prepared for me. And he will do the enemy's bidding. And so this is what the Bible clearly says. This preparation has been happening for a long time and it is increasing. It is increasing. So again, the enemy, when he reveals the Antichrist, he will not have to do very much. Nothing extreme, nothing sudden to suddenly influence the world. But rather, the world will already be in tune with him. And sadly, you know what? This includes the church. I put that in quotes because this isn't the real church. Not the true church. But everything that calls itself church, but this includes the church. The church will be perfectly prepared and ready to receive him when he's revealed. Why? Because that spirit of Antichrist has been working. It is very much alive and working right now, even in the church. It is even preparing the church for his coming. So some of you guys are thinking, you know, is, this is far out there, Roy. <laughs> well, is it? Is it very hard to believe? Well, the Bible tells us how the spirit of Antichrist and the lawless one is preparing the world. It doesn't just say these things. It tells us how this is happening. So you tell me if this is unbelievable. You tell me if this is not true to what's happening. But in Matthew 24, 12, the verse we just read, right? Lawlessness will increase, love will decrease. Right before that, the verses before that, Jesus tells us how the Antichrist spirit is preparing the world for his coming. Okay, he tells us. First, the spirit of Antichrist is preparing the world through persecution. Okay, why persecution? Because the more things get hot and the more it's hard to be a believer, yes, in one sense, that purifies the church. True believers cling to Jesus even more, but a lot of people who aren't true believers, they fall away. They fall away. They begin dropping like flies. And persecution is turning up. You know, I read that there are more Christians around the world today who are being persecuted for their faith than any other time in church history. See, we don't, we, don't, we don't think about that. We go, oh, yeah, it was bad in Bible times. Oh, whew, glad I wasn't living in those times. Well, back in those times, there were very small numbers of Christians being persecuted. Yes, we read about them. It was terrible. But today, in the day that we live, there are far more, far more than throughout church history. According to one organization that tracks these numbers, in 2021, last year, 360 million Christians around the world were persecuted for their faith. That's more than a third of total Christians in the world. They were persecuted. And 6,000 were killed for their faith, just last year. And those numbers, they're terrible, and they're a 24 increase from the previous year. So from 2022 to 2021, those numbers jumped by 24%. And this might, again, this might not seem terrible because you're thinking, well, that purifies the church, and yes. But another result of persecution is many fall away, and that's what the spirit of Antichrist is doing. There's persecution. And here in America, the land of the free, you're not going to be taken away to jail. You're not, well, at least not for now. <laughs> you're not going to be, you know, fired from your job. You might be, actually. But most likely, it'll be just, you know, people ostracizing you, talking behind your back, and doing these kinds of things. And even with that, that small level of persecution, Christians are falling away. So I'm done with this. I don't need to go to church anymore. They're falling away. And so this is how the Antichrist spirit is preparing the world for his coming. Here's another way Jesus mentions, through deception. Again, just read those verses right before, Matthew 24, 12. Another way is through deception. The spirit of Antichrist is not only making it hard to confess Jesus as Lord, but it's deceiving people so that they no longer want to confess Jesus as Lord. 
See, some people, they're persecuted away from the church. Other people, they're deceived away. They don't want to believe in Jesus anymore. According to a recent Gallup poll in 2020, less than 50% of U.S. adult Christians regularly attend church. In comparison, back in 1999, 70% of U.S. adults said they attended church. I remember 1999, like yesterday. I just started seminary. (laughs) I just graduated college and I started seminary. And back in those golden days, 70% said they went to church. Who knows if that was true? But 70% said they did. So in just 20 years, 20% drop? Wow. Back in 2020, a Christian university did a study and found, this is is two years ago, they found that about 61% of millennials in the U.S. considered themselves Christian. Okay, that's not too bad. But that is a lot lower than the previous generations that were in the 70s and 80s. 61% of millennials say they're Christian, but they found that among that group, only 2% have a biblical worldview. That's sad. 2% have a biblical worldview. And how do they know? They gave them a test, and they answered it, and it was all wrong. (laughs) They got a 98% failure rate. In comparison, about 6% of all Christian adults in the U.S. have a biblical worldview. A little bit better, but those numbers are terrible. 6% of people who say they're Christian in the U.S. have a biblical worldview. So what is all this? This is evidence that deception is growing. And you don't need to conduct a study, right? You just have to talk to people. You just have to listen to what they're saying. But ask them, what is your view on God? What is your view on Jesus? What is your view on how people are saved? What is your view on human sexuality, human you know, nature? And their answers are all over their place. And they're rarely in line with scripture. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul said that time is coming, and brothers and sisters, it's not coming anymore. It's here, right? It's here. Maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're sitting here going, I don't know if I'm going to come back here because it's not really itching my ear. (laughs) Or scratching my ear, I should say. My itching ears. And we pray for you. But this is lawlessness, right? So this is lawlessness that is increasing in the world. And because of that, love is decreasing in the world. And this is the context we need to be the church. Do you understand? So when I say, hey, let's love each other, I'm not just saying, hey, kumbaya, let's love each other. This is an urgent, this is a dire call. We must love one another. Why? Because love is dropping like flies all around us. I'm talking about true love for God, loving him with everything we are and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We are not doing that. The church is increasingly not doing that. Why? Because the culture is not doing that. We are living in the last days. And so in this kind of a context... We, as a church, must love one another. That's the call for this series. We must love one another. To use the image that Paul used in Philippians 2, we must become like stars against the backdrop of a dark night sky. And if you ever went out at night, early in the evening, as it got later and later, until it hit midnight, which is the darkest time of the night, the stars keep getting brighter and brighter. That's the way the church should be. As the night sky, as the culture all around us, the world gets darker and darker and darker. The church must get brighter and brighter and brighter, and there aren't many. I believe the true church is very few. But in the same way that you look up at the stars, and it's not packed with stars, right? You just see stars here and there. But they do matter. These stars do matter. 
In the same way, churches, we need to be like those stars. And so we must love one another. Okay, we must love one another. Okay, this is not a kumbaya message. We must. And why? Another reason that Jesus gave is because that's how they're going to know we are Christians. And that makes sense to me. In this culture where love is dropping and lawlessness is increasing, everyone's just living however they want. They're rejecting authority. They look at Christians and go, whoa, what is that? You guys are weird. I'll be honest. You guys are weird. You guys might even have some weird politics and weird things going on in your community. But what is that, though? I don't have that. And they get drawn to it. You know, Leslie Newbegin, he has a wonderful commentary on John. But in that commentary, he quoted a different scholar. And this different scholar said, it is not the effect that it has on world history that legitimates the Christian faith. Talking about Christianity. But it's strangeness within the world. It's strangeness within the world. Okay, what is this person saying? In other words, it's the strangeness or the uniqueness of our love that makes Christianity legitimate in the eyes of the world. It's not that we've changed the world. I mean, that matters somewhat, but, but non-Christians look at that and they go, whatever, right? They don't care. Hey, Christianity changed the world. They go, whatever. But it's the uniqueness and the strangeness of our love that will draw them because that's personal, right? They're going to see that and they go, what, what is that? I don't have that in my life because I live for myself. I do whatever I want. I'm not submitted to anything. But what is that? See, it's the strangeness, our strangeness and our love that will draw the world. And this is what Jesus is saying. So that's probably the longest intro I've ever given. <laughs> that's the context for this whole series. But I want to look at Christ's love for the next few weeks. This is just going to be a short series, just a few weeks. And today, we're not going to get through all the points uh, from this passage. But I do want to look at the first point, And this is a big one. This is the big one. But there are different marks to Jesus' love. And these marks, yeah, we need to imitate them. Yeah, they're there for us to copy. But it's more than that, right? These love, this love actually transforms us, right? It transforms us. And so here's the first mark of his love. Jesus' love went to the end. It went all the way to the end. And this is coming straight from earlier in John 13. So that passage where Jesus said, love one another, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. This is how all the world will know you're my followers, love one another. Well, where did that come from? That's at the very end of this beautiful story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And in that story of him washing the disciples' feet, we get a clear picture of Jesus' love. It goes to the end. It goes all the way to the end. There's, there's few things like washing feet that really just kind of quiet your heart. I really wish I was there in Malawi because I know they went to an orphanage and they washed the, the feet of the orphans. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful thing. And yeah, I could tell. I could tell that that was kind of like, whoa, this is different. Okay, even just from talking to some of the people and even the pictures, like, wow, this is different. Right? It kind of just stops you in your tracks. The closest example I had of that is um, I remember um, people uh, having this kind of ceremony uh, this leadership ceremony where they went around and washed each other's feet, and I was one of them. And it was kind of bizarre, right? When they come around to wash your feet, you're like, ooh, this is weird, right? My feet really stink. I have toe jam. Sorry, I didn't clip my toenails, right? It's like, wow, this is very awkward. But it kind of stops you in your tracks. But that's the picture here. But it stops you in your tracks. What is this? Why is Jesus doing this? So in this picture of Jesus washing the feet, 
Okay, this is teaching us a powerful lesson of service, humility, love. Okay, it, all by itself, this is a powerful picture. Okay, you don't even need words, right? All by itself, it shows us how much Jesus loves us. Just all by itself. And so we can look at that and we go, yeah, thank you, Jesus. And we're going to try to do the same. But it's so much more than that, right? Yes, it is an example. He wants us to follow it. He literally wants us to wash one another's feet. This is how we're going to love one another. Jesus said, do the same as I did. But if we stop there, I don't think we've gotten the full picture. Okay, that's not the full lesson here. Because the foot washing is so much more than just an example, right? But this is a picture of how far Jesus' love went for us. And how far did his love go for us? It went all the way to the cross. It's a picture of how far his love is going to go. It's, it's going to go all the way to the cross. So you know what the foot washing is? I think I've mentioned this before, maybe on Good Friday. But it's a symbol, right? It's not just an example we should copy. It's a symbol pointing to something greater. Kind of like the American flag. When you see the flag, yes, you know, you know that this flag is pointing to something bigger, right? The United States of America, this whole country we live in. It's the same way. The foot washing is like a little flag. Yes, it was beautiful on its own, but it's pointing to something much greater. How far Jesus' love will go, which is him dying on the cross for us. So Jesus washing the disciples' feet is a symbol of him dying on the cross for his disciples. The feet washing is a lesser version of the cross. Okay, that's what I'm trying to get at. If you understand Jesus' love in the feet washing, you're going to understand what Jesus is doing on the cross as well. Look at John chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, you don't have to look at it. I'll just read it. But it says here, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So it's very clear. He loved them to the end. How is foot washing loving to the end? Because it's a symbol, right? It's pointing to how he's going to really love them to the end. It's a symbol. And that word there, end, is a translation of the Greek word, and in the New Testament, it can mean literally the end of something, like the end of a movie, or it can also mean the max. Okay, we have a worship leader here named Max. Brother, Ma oh, not you. <laughs> Where's Max? But we have a brother named Max, but it also means max, right, to the max. That was very confusing, totally unnecessary. Forget about that. But to the max, you're like, how does that connect to max or worship leader? I don't know. It doesn't at all. I don't know why I said it. Max, right? It means to the max, to the ultimate. That's what end means. And I think that's the meaning here in verse 1. It doesn't so much mean the end of something like a movie, but it means to the max, to the ultimate. It means Jesus loved us to the utmost, to the max. And washing the disciples' feet was a way Jesus was pointing to that. He was pointing to that. So why is all this important? was important because when you truly see that, okay, Jesus, you love me to the end, you love me to the max, okay, not only is that a powerful example for you to follow, yes, but before that, okay, you're not going to follow it. I know you and I know me. I'm not going to follow it. We're going to try to love a little bit and then we're going to give up. But if we want to love people to the max, and you know what needs to happen? You need to personally be struck by it. You need to be hit hard by it. You need to be stopped in your tracks by it. And too many people who sit in church, they have never experienced that. And that's why there's no change. He has never gone from here and has never sunk down to here. Where that love to the max, oh my goodness, you love me to the max. That word me has to be there. It's one of the few, few times when that word me is good. You love me to the max. 
So Jesus loved us to the max. And once you truly experience that, you know what happens? You get changed. Okay, this, is where, this is where loving one another begins. But Jesus' love to the max will begin to kill your love for yourself. Okay, as Jesus' love to the max begins to grow in your heart, your love for yourself will begin to diminish. Okay, that's how it's going to happen. It's not going to be like, oh, okay, I heard a good sermon on love. No, you're not going to love people. I won't love people. Oh, okay, I should do this because I'm a Christian. No, you won't. You'll try a little bit and you'll give up. You'll stop. But once Jesus' love to the max has taken a hold of you, then your love for yourself, which is the thing that gets in the way of loving others, that begins to die. You know, one of the most interesting things about Jesus washing the disciples' feet is that while Jesus was loving them to the max, you know what was happening right before? The disciples were loving something else to the max. We don't see this in John's gospel, but Luke's gospel points it out. Luke's gospel has the same story. And Luke told us, he tells us, maybe John left it out because it was a little embarrassing. I don't know. (laughs) But Luke, he's like, I'm not one of them, so I'll tell you. But Luke said, I'll tell you what happened right before Jesus loved them to the max, washing their feet. They were fighting. It says here, a dispute, a fight arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. Who's the best? And they're fighting over that. Right before Jesus begins to wash their feet? Really? Really, guys? So while Jesus was loving them to the max, the disciples were loving something else to the max. They were loving themselves. They love themselves. And this is a perfect picture of every single one of us. Okay, they're just normal human beings representing all of us. The reason why we cannot love one another is because we love ourselves. Let's just be honest here. It's not because we're distracted. It's not because we're tired. It's not because we're so busy. We just love ourselves too much. And there is nothing that will break that spell. Nothing that can break that spell except for Jesus' love. But we're all enslaved by this. These are the selfish desires that live in our hearts. You know, this past week, I was meeting with a couple doing premarital counseling. But we talked about this. A lot of times couples, when they're fighting... What comes out of their mouth? Whatever's in their heart. Jesus says, whatever's in the heart comes out, right? And what is in the heart usually? Selfish desires. That's why we fight. I want this. No, I want it this way. No, I want it this way. And then we fight. Okay, why is that happening? It's because these desires are in our hearts. And I've said this many times, but we need to really, really just live with this reality. These desires is who you are. Okay, they are who you are. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, who's the real you? Okay, what, what's your heart deep down? What really is your heart? Well, I'll tell you. It's whatever you desire, whatever you love most. Okay, the things that are buried deep in your heart that drive you every day. Some of you guys, you're really driven by making really good grades, getting into a really good job, and making tons and tons of money. And let's just be honest, that is what you love. That is what drives your heart and it comes out of your mouth even in unguarded moments. Others, you are all about, I just really, really, really need to be affirmed by people. And so I will do everything possible in my power to get people to like me. And that is what drives you every day. You wake up and that is what you love. And it looks like you're loving people, but it's really you're loving yourself, right? You're not really loving people. You're loving what they can give you, which is affirmation, acknowledgement, respect, whatever. So it's ultimately just coming back to you. You're loving yourself, and that's what drives you every day. 
Others of you, you are driven by being a great Christian who checks every box, dots every I, crosses every T. Why? So that God will love me and I can feel good about myself. And let's just be honest. What is all that about? I want to feel good about myself. And so it looks like you're loving God and loving others, but ultimately, what is it? Again, it comes back to me, right? I just want to feel good about who, who I am. And so you're loving yourself. And so who, are, who is the real you? Who is the real you? It's what you love most in your heart. So regardless of what we say, regardless of what we do, is these loves in our hearts that drives us. And you can never fake these things. I remember this one time when I was um, listening to a graduation speech. It was actually my graduation from seminary. And I was kind of excited to hear this, right? I'm like, okay, I want to hear the speech and I want to hear the sermon. And this person, I think he was a government politician, but he was a Christian. He was invited to speak at my seminary. He was some high-level person, official person. And he started talking, and it kind of started okay. And then the more he talked, the more we started sinking in our seat. And the reason why is because he just kept talking about himself. It's like, okay, again, another story about yourself? Another story about yourself? And every story was about how great of a Christian he is. Almost kind of like trying to convince us that he's a good Christian. And I even saw the professor sitting behind him just kind of like, you know, looking up at the ceiling. It's like, this guy's just talking about himself for like 40 minutes. And so what am I saying? You just can't hide this stuff. It just comes out, right? In your unguarded moments, it just comes out. Some of us, not our unguarded moments. It's just coming out all the time. So what is in your heart? That is the real you. It's your love. So for example, if you love yourself, rather than loving people, you love people saying great things about you, that's who you really are. If you love pleasure and comfort, more than anything, that's who you are. If you love your children more than anything, I mean, that's a good thing, but that's just who you are. Okay, we, we went through all this. You love money, you love success, you love all the, that's who you really are. And these desires, they are so powerful, they direct the course of your life. And I'll tell you exactly where it's leading you. Away from loving one another and increasing in lawlessness. Okay, that's where it's always going to drive your life. You're going to always go further and further away from love and closer and closer to whatever you want. Lawlessness. And so this is the condition of the human heart. James 1.13. When tempted, no one should say God is tempting me because God doesn't do that. But each one is tempted rather when he or she is dragged away and enticed by what? Their own desires. James said actually evil desires. So we are controlled by these desires. We are driven by these desires. These desires create the life we have. You don't have to wonder why do I have this life? It's because of your heart. Didn't Proverbs 4 say that? Guard your heart with all vigilance because from it flow the issues of life. In other words, from your heart flow out all the things in life that are important to you. Why do you have the life you have? It's because of your heart. Why do I have the life I have? Because of my heart. It's because of our hearts. So then, what is a true Christian? Okay, what's a true Christian? People might say, well, someone who goes to church, someone who studies the Bible, someone who serves other people. Okay, those might be indicators. But that'd be kind of like saying, well, what's a true student? Somebody who carries a backpack, somebody who turns in assignments, somebody who shows up at school. Okay, those are some indicators, right? But, but what is a true student? It's something else, right? What's a true student? It's a person who learns from somebody else. That is a student. There is a teacher, and the student is the person learning from that teacher. You're actually learning. So then what's a true Christian? In the same way, it's not somebody who goes to church, somebody who carries a Bible, somebody who, you know, knows scripture. Those things are important. But who's a true Christian? 
is somebody who has received a new heart. And you go from desiring yourself and all the things in the world, you are living an utterly lawless life, to now you are utterly submitted to God. And you are now desiring God. Desiring God. (laughs) That's a good ministry. But desiring God. You're desiring God and what he wants. You're loving him. That's a true Christian. Paul says in Romans 3.23, the biggest problem human beings have is no one seeks after God. None is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. In other words, nobody wants God. You don't desire God. But a true Christian, what happens? I desire God. I want God more than anything. So now who, who are you now? Deep in your heart. You're a Christian. Why? Because your desire changed. Your desire changed. I don't want myself. I still do, sort of. Actually, I do a lot. But I want God more. I want him more. And the more your desire for God grows, what happens? The more you begin to love him and love others. See, this is the true Christian, brothers and sisters. John 4, 19, none of these verses are up there, but we love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. See, he loves us, we know that, but are you loving him? That's the true Christian. I'm not saying you're saved by that. You're saved by grace through faith, that's it. But this is how you know you're a true Christian. Your desires have changed. And so why am I talking about this for so long? It's because this is the beginning point of loving one another. If I just sat up here, or stood up here, I should say, and talked for 30 minutes, love one another, love one another, you're not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I just know how the human heart is. Because all those words are going to fall on top of a heart that already loves yourself more than anything. So it's just kind of like sprinkling some stuff, but it doesn't change the taste, right? Sprinkling some sugar on like something like really bitter, like old moldy bread, it doesn't change the taste. So I don't want to sprinkle sugar on top of old moldy bread. I want you to have a completely new lump of bread, a new heart. So this is how we're going to begin to love one another. And this is how we're going to begin to love others to the end. So ultimately, Christianity is not about you becoming like Jesus by yourself, and then God's going to begin to love you, but rather you come and receive God's love. Okay, by pure grace, you just receive his love, and then you begin to become like Jesus, and you wash other people's feet. Okay, we're going to get that order right. So are you receiving the love of Jesus? Are you coming before him? Okay, even today, is it real to you? And you can be honest, God is not real. You can even beg God. Sometimes I beg God, God, I read this today in the Bible. It's just, I don't feel it. It's not real. It doesn't do anything to me. And I beg God, God, change that. Right? Are you begging God? God, if the true Christian is somebody who desires you in the heart, deep down, this is more what I want than anything else, I don't, I don't know. I don't think this is me. God, please change that. You could pray that. You can pray it. So why are you here, brothers and sisters? <laughs> You know, in Malawi, I had a great time, uh, you know, speaking at the retreat and talking to all these students. And that's one question I asked them in my last message is I said, why are you guys all here? And what I meant by that is, what's your purpose for being here? Like for you too, what's your purpose? Why, why Why do you come to church? I mean, we're glad you're here. And soon the students should be back and I'm glad the students will be here too. But, but why are you here? What is the purpose? Is it to just love yourself more? I've been talking about this for the last several weeks, but is it because Jesus adds value to your life? And I just want, oh, yeah, I, just, I don't know. I just need help so that I can love my, my life more. But, Roy, you're not doing that. You keep talking about all this other stuff, Antichrist. 
I need, I need you to talk to me about, my, about me, my problems, because I love me. See, don't you understand? I come to church because I love myself, and I need you to talk to me about me. But you're not doing that, so I'm tuning out. So I'm just getting very honest with you guys here. I've been there. But I'm tuning out because you're not talking about me, and I love me the most. See, I don't love God the most. I love me the most. And so when you're going on and on about God, it's hard for me to pay attention because I don't love God. I love me, but you're not talking about me. Why are you here? For others, maybe it is. No, I do love God. Deep down, you know, I struggle, but I really do love God. But I need help. I need help. Well, hopefully this will begin to help you. You need to come before the Lord. Lord, I read all this. I need to love others. I need to live a life of loving you and loving my neighbor, but I'm not there. I love me. So how do I break that spell? Well, come before the Lord. Amen? Come before the Lord. Let's bow our heads. You need to understand how much Jesus loves you to the max. That needs to become real. That needs to become real. And brothers and sisters, I I really say this with a heavy heart, but also a hopeful heart. But if you continue on from this place, just living a life where the greatest love in your heart is for yourself, you will live a life full of pain, struggle, conflict, and God forbid, of falling away from God himself. Because God never designed a human heart to live loving itself. That being the driving motivator of your life. I love me. I'm all about me. And that's how I live my life. That is not how God designed it. You're going to run into problem after problem after problem. And so I want to encourage you. Let's just come before the Lord and say, God, I want the deepest desire of my heart to be for you. I want to love you more than anything else. And that love has to be so real, it needs to start to change you. That's the only way we're going to be able to love one another. loves you. doesn't matter what state you're in right now. He really, really loves you to the end. He has demonstrated that on the cross. And any discipline from God is a discipline of love. Any word from God is a word of love. Even if it might sound a little harsh, it's a word of love. He loves you. This has to become real, especially in these last days, right? We're headed towards the midnight hour. It's getting darker and darker. More and more people are living for themselves, not less, right? That's obvious. More and more people are lovers of money, lovers of themselves, haters of God. And the church is called to be the complete opposite to the point where we're just weird we're just strange and yet oddly attractive so let's just come before the Lord thank you Lord let's just ask for that love Lord Jesus help us to experience your love